This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hello, Bad Movie Lovers. I'm your host, Nick Scheist, and we are back on schedule for a change with another episode of Bad Movies We Love. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. That's right, and you can join the resistance by going over to coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com slash love, and making a donation like my good friend Ben from The Cinema Shit Show. Donations like his go a long way in helping out an independent podcast such as this one, and I actually used that donation to go ahead and buy the background music for this episode. So you can see that it all stays in-house and goes to good use. Plus, if you make a donation, you get access to the Discord server, where you can talk to me behind the scenes about all the bad movies that you love. But for today's episode, we're going back to the wish list, as I'm joined once again by Movie Miss from Let's Talk Turkeys, as she joined me to go apeshit over Frank Marshall's Congo from 1995. Love it or hate it story-wise, this movie's just a delight. It's not poorly made, and it was successful. I want to watch this, absolutely, this looks crazy. Well, guess what? You know what we can do with these diamonds? We could turn into a fucking laser bazooka. I want an Amy. Make me a drink or I'll rip your arms and legs off kind of thing. Kids will be kids. You sort of need people to be there to die. My Mystery Science Theater kicked in. I was so excited. Tim Curry and Ernie Hudson are like having this battle of like who can have the crazier accent in this movie. I don't want anybody peeking. I don't have a price. I'm not a pound of sugar. I'm a primatologist. How many versions of this do I need to own? For Congo, the answer is all of them. Stop eating my sesame cake. Movie Miss, welcome back to another episode of Bad Movies We Love. You're flying solo today, but we're flying into the jungle to talk about Congo from 1995. Uh, Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for accepting the invitation to talk about a movie that I love so much from my childhood, and that's uh, Frank Marshall and, I guess, technically Michael Crichton's Congo from 1995. Yes, Nick, thank you so much for having me for this one. I when when you had had said you wanted to cover this, I thought thank god somebody else on this planet <laughs> loves this movie as much as I do. <laughs> because I have been alone in my love for this for a very long time. Me too. <laughs> it's it's one of those movies that like I think its reputation just was like so sour around the time that it came out. And it was sort of packed into a mid nineties that was full of stuff like Jurassic park, where I, I guess like the high end of what this type of movie could be was so good that it's easy to look at this and just be like, it's bad, but it's one that I've always loved. The cast is freaking amazing for this movie. And 
you know, I was just kind of joking around on Twitter when I was watching this. And I said, Laura Linney wielding a laser gun, slicing up gorillas, throwing one liners around and just generally kicking ass as an action star is something that I wish we had gotten more of. And I'm like, yes, she's a fantastic actress. She's a great like prestige drama actress. But this is so much fun to just see her in a role like this where they they sort of surround her with all these like different versions of overly macho stereotypes. And she's really the hero in this story. Her and Amy. Oh, totally. The The thing that that made me realize I was alone in this is because every time I would bring it up, people would compare it to Jurassic Park. And I would say, mm-hmm. well, you know, this was a lot of it was practical. Where, you know, the people in the suits and, and all that. So this one for me, especially Amy, I want an Amy. <laughs> me too. <laughs> well, maybe not really, but I, you know, in theory. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but but the thing about this, what you say with Laura Linney, you're right. This this cast is stacked. I mean stacked. And everyone is playing this for 100% serious. Mm-hmm. I think that's what sells it. She is she is a Ripley to me. Like <laughs> Yeah, she, exactly. When she has to pull it out, she pulls it out. And I think that's maybe why like it connected with me is because I sort of grew up with the like the Sarah Connors and the Ellen Ripley's that are like, you know, they're not just resourceful and intelligent, but when push comes to shove, they whoop some ass too. So this was always a character that was sort of like my introduction to Laura Linney. And I mean, she's gone on to do a ton of great stuff since this. I mean, I really loved her in Primal Fear as well, which I think was either the same year or like maybe a year or two before this. So like this was sort of right around the time where I was starting to realize like who she was and what she was capable of. But to sort of, they also kind of bury her as the lead, like we're given this idea that it's really sort of Dylan Walsh's character that's the lead here because he's Amy's handler. And that's almost like it starts to just like crumble on itself, maybe a little bit, because the more we get into it, the more we realize that like he's just there to sort of be Amy's handler. And I and I loved Amy. And like I have a big dog who is like friendly to us. But when she's scary, she's scary. So it's always like, <laughs> you know, she's she's always like my little gorilla in that way. And this is just a movie that I think is still so much fun. It's not super long either. So it's not like it's wasting a ton of time. I mean, an hour 50, like you could maybe trim a little bit out of it here and there. But I felt watching it again, it was like really brisk. I still had a lot of fun with it. And it probably been at least 15 years since I had seen it. But I used to watch it on cable like over and over and over again. And my mom worked in like the peripheral movie business sort of like on the media side of things uh, back in the 90s. And she used to get screeners for certain movies and she wasn't able to go to this one. So this was one where my older sister went in and was like, oh, yes, I'm this person. And so we went and we saw the premiere. And so I always like had a strong affection for it because it was one of those movies that I got to go see like really early before everybody else. And then I you know, didn't have a movie circle really beyond that. So it wasn't until years later where the movie hits cable that I really even got to talk to anybody about it. But I guess what was your first experience? Was this one that you went to theaters for? Was it one that you were excited for before it came out? Oh, totally. I was ready for it and I was excited to go. I was so happy when I watched it because it was just 
crazy. <laughs> the, the premise is, but the thing I think that, that hurt it was it's PG 13. Yeah. And so I love horror movies. So I was excited about the horrific elements where it starts to get a bit frightening with the animal yeah. attack horror mm-hmm. of it and the tension at the end with, you know, everything happening. So I was a little let down seeing it in the theater that it wasn't one way or the other. It wasn't full-blown horror action leaned into R and it wasn't super family friendly. It was kind of riding that line. And I think maybe that's what hurt it ultimately. Yeah. And you had also made the like sort of connective uh, comparison to a movie like Jurassic Park, which had come out a few years earlier, which is also a Michael Crichton book, if I'm not mistaken. And that is also a PG-13 movie. But I think with a movie like Jurassic Park, where the some of the main characters are children, it sort of lends itself to being a little bit more frightening than than the setup for this. So I don't know. Do you feel that Jurassic Park was like more effective as I guess in its horror elements than this was? I felt it was more family friendly because it had the kids Mm. putting the kids in danger definitely is is scary and can hit home for a lot of people who have kids um but i didn't feel that they were i don't know i don't know how to explain it it did it didn't hit me that way maybe because hmm. i don't have kids it was just like any other person being in a you know a bad situation so it wasn't any more or less effective in that way for me hmm. okay i mean maybe i was just like i guess i was at the age where those kids were sort of close to my age at the time Ooh, that jurassic maybe. park came out so i'm like okay well you know they're being <laughs> hunted by a velociraptor or sort of where they all have to be quiet in the truck where the T-Rex is sniffing them out. So maybe just, I mean, that's Steven Spielberg too. So maybe it's just his understanding of like how Jaws works and how Jaws was a PG movie, but also an effective horror movie when it wants to be and sort of mending those elements without one having to be dominant where Congo definitely feels like a movie that wants to be rated R, but had to be PG-13 in order to make it accessible. But I find myself with almost like every movie that I watch now, I'm like, I wish there was a rated R version of this because it feels like this has adult content, but has to pull its punches because there's just not the same kind of market for like adult rated R stuff that there used to be in the 90s. But oddly enough, there's no children in it, like you said. And so... Mm -hmm it's like why why bother trying to be so family friendly because it's adult content all of it the jokes are adult jokes they should have leaned into the r (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's centered around an adult sort of romantic relationship with laura linney and uh was it bruce campbell's character i thought you were gonna say amy (laughs) (laughs) i mean look that would have had to be worse than rated r if we're gonna do like primate on human love story i mean there's some of that weird stuff going on too with uh dylan walsh's character but no between like the catalyst for the film is that laura linney is trying to find a way to get to her i think fiance who is the son of her boss and there's a lot of like sort of inner workings of their business and what the the big evil father-in-law wants to do and he's really oh, we, about profit motive we got to get into that can we please oh, yeah. get into that yeah we can go for it right now it's fine <laughs> oh my god the beginning of the movie when we when we get to meet the amazing joe don baker mm-hmm. uh, owning this company and 
I get it with, I'm not a techie person, but I can jump on the vibe. Okay. We need the diamond. That's going to help with technology, yada, yada. But what got me was she was supposed to be engaged previously to Bruce Campbell's character, yeah. Jodan Baker's son, who mm-hmm. went on safari to, to look for this uh, technology, the diamond. But what got me was he, they give him this amazing like way to beat this line where he says, well, I'll be human later, you know, when stuff goes awry. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's like, can you just be human? Your son is out there. And I like that that they give him that where he's like, I, I have people depending on me. I have to run my business, but I'll be human later. And and she 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 knows this. She works for him. She knows what this man is like. But then she says, fine, I'll go. You can send me to look for Charles and, and the expedition. But if I think for one second that you're not sending me there for your son, I'll make you sorry. And I was like, don't start the movie that way, because it's like, is, is she not smart? Does she not understand who she works for? <laughs> That's a good like, point. He does have a dramatic sort of like blowout speech in their operating room, sort of laying out that, like, I am very invested in everything except for my son. And if you want to save him while you're there, of course, please do. But realistically, like, go get the diamonds. Yeah, he's a complete jerk and it's like you don't know this is who you work for are you kidding me when she gives him this ultimatum about i'll make you sorry that was yeah. weird to me it's like I she's mean, smarter than that come on she definitely is and it would have just been much more effective from a storytelling standpoint to sort of pull that punch until the very end because they do have that one-on-one uh i guess it's like a satellite phone call at the end where She's like explaining what's happened and that uh, his son has died (laughs) and he sort of like dismisses it. And he's like, well, what about the diamond? And in that moment, okay, we get all of the context from the beginning here at the end. So we don't need it at the beginning. And you it's not as impactful when you already know that this guy really doesn't care all that much. You know, he's not like he. I don't even think he like shows any emotion when he finds out that his son dies. Like, well, eh, nope. where's my diamonds? God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't. And, you know, the thing about Bruce Campbell, I was so delighted because I had loved him from Evil Dead and, mm-hmm. and all that. He pops up in the beginning and you're like, oh, my gosh, is Bruce Campbell in this, too? Right. No, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> but he auditioned to be the Dylan Walsh character. So I was kind of bummed that he didn't get it. But then on the other hand, after watching Congo, I kind of have a hard time seeing him in that role. I think Dylan Walsh is perfect for it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like that Bruce is in it. And oddly enough, there's a lot of movies around this time where it's like that guy that dies in the beginning is always the guy that goes on and like parlays that into bigger roles beyond that but it just seemed like that wasn't the case for bruce campbell and it was interesting to try to watch him sort of play this uh dramatically and straightforward and not really inject a bunch of humor into it and not be the bruce campbell that he was famous for and that we all sort of knew and loved and it was like he was trying to actually like be a leading man in the way that you know hollywood convention would allow and He's he's not even bad in this movie. I would have liked to see more of him, more of that beginning part of the story, because we see none of his relationship with Laura Linney's character. So I'm like, do they have any chemistry that's worth fighting for? Like we see them on a phone call briefly 
And I'm like, okay, so we're supposed to believe that she's just going to like fly into the middle of Africa to go and fight for this love that you haven't really established for us at all. And so yeah. like that, that's a little bit of a stretch. He establishes ex fiance, and I'm like, is that enough, really? To right? drive you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I don't think that he like if you put him in the Dylan Walsh role, I think that probably lends itself way too much to his comedic stylings, and then you get a very different kind of movie, and maybe maybe better, maybe worse. I don't know, but it just it it didn't really play out the way that I would have expected it for Bruce Campbell's career after that point, because I had known him from evil dead already. So going into it, I'm like, Oh look, it's Bruce. And then after that, I'm like, well, wait a second. Normally the guy that dies in the beginning goes on to have like a lead role in a movie a year or two later. And I mean, I think what what was after this, like Bubba Hotep. And so that wasn't really, (laughs) I mean, I like Bubba Hotep, but that was not a Michael Crichton project, you know, two years down the line. No. No, but 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 very, very good in its own right. <laughs> yeah, a very different kind of movie, but I definitely Bruce Campbell's style of movie. And I, I love that about it. Yeah. But you had mentioned uh, Joe Don Baker. And like, as soon as he hits the screen, my brain is immediately like, have I ever seen this guy be a good guy? He's almost always like the bad guy in some capacity. And then I think at best I've seen him sort of be the like on the ground sort of snarky liaison right like he'll be somebody's sidekick but not for the whole movie just oh you fly into a foreign country and you got to meet this guy who gets the car and gets you the weapons and then he's gone from the movie but he's such a good actor (laughs) and i mean he's actually really good in this it just seems like yeah they kind of they played their hand a little too early with the idea of what his character is supposed to do and supposed to be when he popped up, I just went, Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> My mystery science theater kicked in. I was so excited. Uh, yeah. And I mean, just like the overall cast in general, you got, you know, Tim Curry here, Ernie Hudson, Dylan Walsh, Laura Linney, uh, Grant Heslov, who went on to be like a sidekick and a lot of other things as well. Uh, I think it was Loa, Lola No that played Amy. Uh, Mary Ellen Trainer is in this. Uh, Stuart Pankins in this. So you really have like a lot of solid, not just character actors, but like really good supporting actors. I mean, Laura Linney obviously went on to probably be like the most well-renowned of the bunch, but a lot of really, really good acting talent in this film. And it just seems like with all the sort of movies that came out around this time, like if you if you look at like Jurassic Park, I mean, like Sam Jackson was not the post Pulp Fiction Sam Jackson at that point. It's not like he was not a famous person, but he was not the Sam Jackson that he is now. I mean, Sam Neill's like a very decorated, like classic actor when he's doing Jurassic Park. I mean, maybe like Laura Dern is the one who goes on and uh, Goldblum goes on to like be these bigger stars getting launched by Jurassic Park. But I think like pound for pound cast wise congo is better a hundred percent because you've got these people i mean joey pants joey pantliano yeah i forgot about him too in a in a bit part he's only in it a little bit but it's like all the bit parts even were Mm -hmm. well cast with people that uh, could definitely they knew the material they delivered they're a delight i mean love it or hate it story-wise this movie's just 
a delight. And because everybody's giving 100%, you fully are invested in the performances. Yeah, Joey Pants actually is that sort of like Joe Don Baker role that we talked about. You fly into Africa. He's the dude in the Hawaiian shirt for some reason. And he's got you the guns and he's got you the plane and the cars and whatever you need. And then he's gone. But he's, he's so snappy and sassy. Yeah. He gets to come in and like just be that best version of himself very quickly and then get out of there before he has to deal with anything else. But not shortly after that, it's like, oh, hey, this is Delroy Lindo as well. He's coming in here. And it's like, what? I was like, damn, this cast is amazing. I was like, no wonder I like this movie so much because you have so many good actors giving good performances. Even if the connective tissue isn't as strong as it should be, like they're all there for the right reasons. And they get great lines. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, when Joey Pants, when he's he's not liking something somebody says and he goes, I do a lot of stuff, but I don't supply assholes with new personalities. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get the you get the Delroy Lindo with the sesame cake bit. Oh my God, my favorite line bag. in the movie. It's one of my favorite yes. lines in cinema history, honestly, that stop eating my sesame cake. I love it. Oh my God, my yes. brother and I. We used to just like say that line to each other for no reason whatsoever. And then it's like we went there was a Chinese restaurant that we used to go to that was like part of our family uh, regular routine. And they would have like the little like sesame breads on the table every time without fail. And then randomly, like I don't talk to him that much anymore because we're both fairly busy right now. But I was watching Congo and I just texted him the the gif of that. And we started talking because it was like, we both love it so much. I was like, let's see if this actually like resonates with him. And it did. So I was really happy to see that as well. But yeah, they put some money on the table and just more, no more. And like he plays it so casually and so confidently that it's it's really just a great, like small bit performance from him. But I wonder, like, was Frank Marshall just like pulling in favors from guys that he knew? Like, come here, be in my movie for like five minutes. And then, you know, that's all you got to do. You'll cash a check. You'll get some screen time. Have you ever heard the bit that Bruce Campbell did or seen the video when he was on a tour for something and people are asking him questions and somebody took a video of him giving a demonstration? He has a kid standing up there. He goes, "Okay, you're an executive that works at whatever studio. He goes, now I'm going to give you. A hundred and or was it? A fi- fi- I'm going to give you fifty million to make a movie. You get to work with Spielberg's people. You get, you know, this. Michael Crichton wrote the source material, and he starts listing off all these reasons why he sh- they should make this movie. And he goes, "Would you make this movie?" And the kid goes, "Yeah." He goes, "Congratulations, you just made Congo." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it had all the pieces you would think to be successful. I mean, it did do 150 million, so people went to see it. Yeah, what was the budget for this? I mean, it couldn't have been. 50. I mean, hey, that's that's a successful movie. That's a very successful movie. You made three times your investment back just in box office. And then, you yeah. know, this, this movie kicked around cable for a while. So I'm sure its home video sales did pretty well, uh, too. So especially when they do the, the sneaky here by the VHS and then, oh, now we're doing DVD. Oh, now there's a special edition DVD. <laughs> oh, now there's a Blu-ray. Now there's a box set Blu-ray. Like, okay, (laughs) how many (laughs) versions of this do I need to own? For Congo, the answer is all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like you have Jerry Goldsmith come in here and do the music as well. So it's like you Mm -hmm. have really, really good pieces in place. And I think the quality of those pieces actually do show through. I think it's just the instance of uh, the 90s were jam-packed with like a lot of competitive uh, action films that sort of fit in a similar mold. 
And it was so competitive that even something like this that is successful, that has all of these great pieces that we've talked about, that sort of hits the key points in the filmmaking. Like, I think it was Stan Winston who did the... uh the gorilla Correct. suits and stuff. So it's like, and, and honestly, all of they're hippos, yeah, all of it. They're great. So it's like, you have really good practical effects. You have really great makeup work. He sort of gave his team the freedom to design the gorillas in the way that they wanted to. So not all of them looked identical. And so you have like a really menacing looking white gorilla. You have a lot of interesting, like set piecing, you film on location, you have a really great cast, you have a really well renowned composer come in and make this movie. And like Frank Marshall, at the time that he made this, he was coming off what was it, Goldeneye? No, he produced that. Sorry, he had made uh, Arachnophobia, you know, a few years before this, then Alive, another really good one. And then he did TV, comes back, does Congo. And Congo's not well received. And then after that, you know, his career starts to go the other direction where it was from 98 to 2006 between him directing the miniseries uh, from Earth to the Moon to doing Eight Below, which was good again. But I think it was just at a time where it's like, you know, you take what was that eight years off at that point or you just you're not directing a project for eight years. You sort of fall out of. Not the public eye, but maybe like the industry eye where Mm -hmm. it's like, hey, we need a director attached to this who has a name, who has a reputation, who's maybe done something like this before. And so eight years is a long time between projects to not take something on. And, you know, Congo wasn't a movie that I would say for the 10 years, 11 years between 95 and 2006 started to uh, grow its reputation like as a cult hit either. So it's like, okay, well, the last time you made a movie, it was Congo. But still, like we said, it's not poorly made and it was successful. So it really has like this negative reputation just based on, I think, a couple of small things that really stand out as bad. And we'll get to that in a minute. But let's take a look at the trailer for Congo. Yes. Before we get to the trailer, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor. I don't know about you, but as I get closer to 40, I could barely fight off another person, let alone an angry silverback gorilla. Hell, even getting out of bed comes with some kind of nagging aches and pains these days. But I'm fighting back against nature thanks to Primate Protein from Good Gorilla Supplements. This unique supplement combines modern-day anti-aging science and long-lost secrets that were recently rediscovered in the hieroglyphics of the ancient city of Zinj. Loaded with primate collagen peptides and protein strands recreated from the bones of an extinct gorilla species and combined with the latest and greatest amino fatty acids, primate protein gives you the best of both worlds. And you don't have to jump out of a plane into a war zone to get it. Primate protein powder can be added to your regular routine in whatever way works best for you. You can have it in your morning coffee, mix it in with water, or even add it to your regular protein shake or smoothie routine thanks to their delicious Bananarama flavor. You'll be ripping arms and legs off in no time. So try Primate protein today and thank me later. Good gorilla. And now, back to the show. I've never actually seen the trailer for this. Yeah, I don't remember if I had seen it either. It was like a premiere that I went to. So it's not the kind of thing that I normally would have had like a prerequisite for. And I was like 11 at the time. So you see that? OK, yes. All right, let's full screen it. 
Activate the remote. In the race for the world's most advanced communications I love his voice. <laughs> a shocking discovery has been made. What was that? Sounds Locked a little like Liam Neeson. It will take two oh, he's still skydiving with a gorilla strapped to his chest. It's amazing, right? How many movies can do that? <laughs> it's got a little An Indiana Jones vibe to it. You know, you're kind of like doing some 100% doom rating. Wasn't Contact like the same year or a year before it? So they're like, we got giant satellites for you uh, Contact fans. A diamond mine of incredible bounty. And some to return The changing... Home. Doesn't really belong anywhere, does she? Uh, the way Tim Curry she speaks, he keeps changing. <laughs> That's a tough accent to pull accent. off for the course of an entire movie. I wasn't gonna make it yeah. another expedition. Drawn deep into a mystery. Camp destroyed, people dead, a gray gorilla. No such thing as a gray well, gorilla. I saw one. And the more they discover... There's no such thing. <laughs> the Famous last words. Danger. Right. What do they say? We are... And it's like Dylan Walsh is what, in his 20s? So it's like he's just like fresh out of college, probably working with Amy. Is he really super confident that there's never been a gray gorilla? <laughs> yeah, like you see all the set piecing here they did with like the collapsing of the fortress. They're giving everything away. Yeah, that's true. Oh. Put him on the endangered species list. Yeah, even the laser gun? Oh yeah, you shouldn't do that. That should be saved. The myth of the killer ape is true. Congo. Where you are the endangered species. Oh. Yeah, we are the endangered species in this case. I mean, the myth of the killer ape? That I mean. Maybe at the time in 1995, it was a myth, but I like since then, like there's been chimps that have broken out of the zoo and like really mangled people pretty badly. Like it's not a myth that apes are going to mess you up. And like that's one of the things that happens very early in this movie is Amy's having a nightmare and they just go in there and try and calm her down. I'm like, oh, my God, you would not want to interrupt a gorilla in the middle of a nightmare. That thing would just rip your arms off and beat you to death with them. <laughs> I know. I just keep thinking of Nope, the movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> little, little Gordy goes nuts. I would not want to be near a gorilla freaking out. No, thank yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. That's just a regular old chimpanzee that's like just a normal three to four times as strong as a human being. It rips your face and genitals off ex the first time it has any conflict with you. So, yeah, you don't. The idea that uh, sort of like a killer gorilla was this thing that maybe wasn't real because i mean I, I remember growing up with the book coco's kitten which was about a gorilla that adopted a kitten like they had given it stuffed animals for a long time to sort of nurture its uh like motherly instincts and we see that here too where amy like she says like yeah amy mother and she's got this little stuffed animal Lovey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's like oh amy's so cute and she's sweet and if you're just basing that off of like okay well there's this one instance of we taught coco the gorilla some sign language she uh too raised this little kitten and sort of treated it as a baby so you see that and then uh, was it jane goodall you know she was doing a lot of gorilla research mm -hmm. uh in the wild as well so maybe just like the general public knowledge of gorillas was that like hey they're fairly smart um 
And there was no evidence to suggest at the time that they would rip you apart. But I mean, fairly shortly after that, we get into like, oh, chimp held in captivity kills owner. And then like a lot of those stories started coming out. And then it's like, okay, well, if chimps are that scary, like, I don't know about a gorilla. I don't trust a gorilla even less than I would trust a chimp here. (laughs) Oh, they're so, so trusting in her. But what I like, is that she and this could be what hurts the movie too she doesn't look real convincing as a real gorilla yeah and i like that because for me i'm not scared of her because i know she's not real by looking at her (laughs) so that probably hurt the movie people are like well that's obviously a suit (laughs) yeah and i had read i think this book was written in like 1980 maybe early 80s and at least what i read said that Crichton was like super intent on filming this with a real gorilla companion and like if i were an actor i'd be like hell no like we're not doing that (laughs) i could see why the project got held up for a decade as like he was holding on to this idea that we could film this with an actual trained gorilla but after watching the trailer i can see why he'd be passionate about wanting to make sure there's a a correct uh, as close to the book as possible adaptation because it's got serious indiana jones vibes yeah. And the trailer, because it mashes everything in a in a cut together, you can really, really tell or Tomb Raider, like you were saying. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's an action movie where you watch the trailer. You're like, I want to watch this. Absolutely. This looks crazy. Yeah. They don't show think, too much of Amy in it. <laughs> th- that's right. They don't. I mean, you see like a lot of the humans you see sort of like they they brag about like the scope of the set piece and sort of like the action sequences they get into. But you don't really tell the audience that there's any kind of primary relationship with Amy as a character, which is actually important to this movie because the story is about this gorilla being returned to her natural habitat. And she sort of outgrown the uh, relationship that she has with the primatologist that have been taking care of her. And it's, it's this thing of we want to do the right thing and bring her back home. And then that idea being co-opted by this eh, evil corporate (laughs) entity that just wants to use that as an excuse to go and get the diamonds. And then also like, Hey, well, we're going to throw Tim Curry in here and give him this, you know, crazy backstory of how he's like a political refugee from uh, Romania And he's going to be involved in trying to hijack this mission for his own personal gain as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he gets caught up with the the idea of these diamonds. But he also at some point comes across as like at least partially the Indiana Jones type, like the one who's in it for the adventure, the one who's in it for the history and the the discovery of the city. He's the guy that's there for exposition to say like, oh, you know, 500 years ago, there were these drawings and they depicted this particular city and a white gorilla. And, you know, so he's the one who's there to sort of like help us along on the story as the, as the audience to sort of understand like what we're about to walk into and to, to also show us that the characters that think they're confident, that think they know everything are really about to have their world sort of turned upside down. It will be shooketh. <laughs> yeah, I actually was thinking about that after this last watch, really, because I was knew I was prepping for the show here, um, analyzing everything. And I thought, you know, as much as I love Laura Linney, 
I could have done without the whole Travicom thing and and just had Herkima, uh, uh, Tim Curry's character, mm-hmm. be a little bit nicer and more likable of a guy and, and explain all this and be the other half of the story. I think we've got the story broken into thirds where it could have just been yeah. half and half. And it still would have been effective. And I would have liked more of him being not such a sleaze, I guess. <laughs> Do you think they did it because in a movie like this, where you're introducing like a violent predator creature, similar to predator or predators or any other of these stories where it's like, there's the hunter and hunted, you sort of need people to be there to die. So the more <laughs> the more people you can add into the equation, the more people that you can creatively kill off the fodder. Yes, we have to yeah. have the fodder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I understand like why they decided to like create this huge like sort of travel party around it, because like, like, OK, Ernie Hudson's the guide on the ground, but like him and Joey Pandaleon sort of cover some similar territory. So they could have been one character. Uh, Homolka, if you just give him money, like just like he's rich, and then you don't even need the whole like Travicon thing, you could exactly you could remove Dylan Walsh and just make that uh, Laura Linney's character and have her be the lead as the primatologist. And she's going to still find her uh, fiance who was doing research in the Congo and maybe, you know, working with apes in the Congo, you could have yet trimmed, I think, a lot of the fat and gotten down to like, here's maybe three or four characters. We care about all of them for different reasons. And then there's still going to be the fodder of like, okay, here's the people that we hired to like help us pack the bags and the camp in and out. And, you know, the guy who needs to get his heart ripped out because it's like, I feel bad for him because he gets like a pretty gnarly death, even though he's like one of the main characters. Agreed. Well, congratulations. You just rewrote a better Congo. (laughs) Some of that. But yeah, the deaths in this is why I'm saying we needed R because they're teetering that line of it's almost too much. And Mm -hmm. as a horror fan, I want more. Yeah. Totally. (laughs) Of all that. But can we talk Ernie Hudson for a second? Yeah, please. Please (laughs) do. You mentioned him. OMG. So his character, (laughs) I guess, is not in the book or he's not african-american he's just a white guy in the book i think Mm -hmm. and you need ernie hudson's personality this is the guy that you bring to the table when you want to beef up your cast with with star power Mm -hmm. in my opinion like ghostbusters you name it you throw him in the movie's just better automatically yeah (laughs) so when he pops up and then he's in it he doesn't get killed so excited about that because he gets some of the best lines. He leads them on this expedition. He's so confident and cocky. Like you're in my territory. This ain't no thing. Like <laughs> I yeah. love him. He's great. And honestly, like there was a time not too far before this movie, like especially during like eighties horror where it's like the black guy in the cast is going to die pretty early in the movie. So to see not only does he not die, but he makes it to the end. He has a big role and we get an actor, uh, the caliber of Ernie Hudson, to step in there. Uh, really fantastic. I mean, I loved seeing him because I had already, you know, loved him from Ghostbusters before this. But uh, just to shout out Ernie again, there's a Nick Cage movie called uh, The Retirement Plan that came out this year. And it's sort of like, a, what if Nick Cage was the Liam Neeson role in Taken, but also like 
what kind of energy movie would that be if Nick Cage was the lead? And so it's more of a comedy. But Ernie Hudson pops in like halfway through and I'm like, oh, it's Ernie and he's great in it. And he makes the movie better when he gets there. So like you said, every movie with Ernie Hudson gets a boost from him being in it. And oddly, I don't know if it's true or not, but one of the things I read said this is his personal favorite role, which to me sounds insane. (laughs) But (laughs) why wouldn't it be? He is like in charge. Yeah, he is. He he say he keeps everybody safe. He keeps the expedition going. He's smart. He's clever. He's witty. Like this is a great role. Yeah, I mean he he gets a ton of dialogue. He's not pushed to the side. And one my favorite moment in the movie, like that he gets, is they sort of come face to face with the silverback gorilla. And they're comparing like what they're supposed to do because you have on one hand the primatologist who on paper like has read the right things and he like knows what to do. The other guy is like, Hey, I have field experience. I've probably seen a gorilla in the wild before. Like, so here's what you do. And they both acknowledge, like you're not supposed to move. And then as the camera sort of pans away, you see that Ernie Hudson is not in the picture anymore. And then he just pops up from behind a bush and he's like, I ran away. (laughs) Everybody disappears except for poor Dylan Walsh. Yeah. You can tell in that moment, you can tell in that moment how green he is. He's textbook, right? Not yeah. in the field like Ernie Hudson. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I love that. I laughed so hard when I saw it again, because he just kind of has this look on his face like, yep, I, I ran away. That's uh, what, there's nothing else to it. Like, I was terrified and I got out of there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but that acknowledgement sort of in that moment too, that like, I guess what it is, it's meant to sort of like show more of the maybe blissful ignorance or like the balls of Dylan Walsh's character that he didn't run. I think it's street smarts versus book smarts. Yeah. So to put it simply, I think that's what that is. Yeah. I mean, it would have been interesting to see just Dylan Walsh get like pummeled to death by a gorilla there (laughs) in that moment. I've been like, Whoa, okay. I see why everybody else ran away. We're rated R now. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's what I want. Rated R for everything. Um, but yeah, like Dylan Walsh's character is super interesting to me in this because I felt like, I mean, you said you liked him in this. For me, I felt like he was the weak link of the cast, like in terms of like a Laura Linney, a Tim Curry, a Ernie Hudson. Like, I think all these people sort of uh, elevate their characters in a way where it's like, I don't necessarily think it's Walsh's fault, but the way that he's written almost makes him sort of like Amy's bitch a couple times. Like... <laughs> <laughs> you know they're on the airplane she's like give me give me a drop and he's like no not right now and then she like says something to him and he's like okay fine and he goes in and he like makes her a martini i'm like whoa they have a weird relationship and she also like amy gets very jealous and the first thing she does when she sees laura linney she goes ugly woman and oh my god i lost it i was like she's so petty and the first thing she does is attack the way that laura linney looks <laughs> no ugly woman <laughs> peter's mine but then later in the movie they're she they're communicating and she says shitty peter so it's like she knows that he's like kind of shitty in a way and so i started like looking at the character dynamics and like he is coming almost off as like pompous a little bit where it's like you know you're dealing with someone in laura linney who's a very intelligent resourceful woman who ends up really like saving your ass and then when you get on the ground you're dealing with people who have like on the ground field experience so realistically like you're just like the book nerd and 
he talks down to Laura Linney at one point about like her nerddom. Like he's gatekeeping nerd culture at that point. And I'm like, bro, like you're a guerrilla scientist. Like she works for like a multi-billion dollar like telecom company. So it's like, why why would you give that to him as a line of dialogue? Because there's not really like a romance being struck between them so much. So it was just like a weird competitive thing between the two of them that I had a hard time pinning down. I was trying to figure out what exactly his field of expertise or multiple was, <laughs> because in the beginning, we're introduced to the concept where he's pitching all these wealthy people, financiers mm-hmm. trying to get money and grants for his project of teaching Amy to speak with this setup, this backpack and this hand uh, thing that reads her sign language. So he's teaching her sign language, how to communicate. And they even show footage of the actual, it is a real thing mm-hmm. that exists. So I did like that, that they incorporated a real thing into the story. But if, if he's so expert at teaching her this and knowing all this, is he? what is his field of expertise exactly? Yeah, that's what I was like trying to figure out was, did he work for whatever the manufacturer or the company was that was trying to make this technology exist so that people that speak sign language can have like an artificial voice production of it? Or is he just using that tech to then teach Amy sign language and to get her to communicate that way? And so, yeah, when he's pitching in that big room, it's like, yeah, what is the objective here? Because the first thing you do after that is like, well, we need to take her back to the wild. So it's like you invested all this time and energy to teach her sign language so that you could show off this product in front of this room full of what I would have to assume is either like intellectuals or other scientists or investors. And then immediately it's like, okay, well, that's off the table. This is not really part of the story anymore. And we're just bringing her back to her home now. So yeah, his character design was weird to me like just the foundation for it because and there was a scene where he's sitting next to grant heslov who plays richard who's like his assistant i was like did we really need like two curly haired dorky (laughs) gorilla scientists in this i was like i think you could have narrowed it down to one (laughs) (laughs) no because they they each bring something different to the role because see the other guy's fodder yeah toward toward the end (laughs) so you know, Can't you have to get yeah, this guy's got to get mangled. And me, exactly. I, I make it through the end. But yeah, there's a line where she's sort of she's like waving around her wallet, right? Because she's got money backing her. Hamulka at that point, you know, they think that he's going to be the one that saves them, at least financially. But he's like, oops, uh, my credit's in trouble because, you know, I'm because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm way more shady than I let on. And she's like say she said something like name your price and he said like i don't have a price i'm not a pound of sugar i'm a primatologist and i was like really like that's what you decided to go with there are you really (laughs) okay i don't know if he's a primatologist i know he has a gorilla (laughs) but but i will say that's the character like you keep pointing out that's how the character was written that's his lines that's who he is as an actor I think why I've grown to really like him in this role is because I've had years. So I've, I've seen him in Nip Tuck. I've seen him in The Stepfather, which love it or hate it. He gives an outstanding sinister performance in that. And then you see him all the way back again now being the sweet, lovable, little goofy, dumb primatologist guy. (laughs) So I'm like, he's got range. Really? Yeah, he does. I mean, he went like Nip Tuck was super popular, you know, and I watched him on that show for years. 
Yeah, and it's totally different from this character. And Stepfather, total 180 of this character. So I appreciate him now, I think, in this role because of seeing him do other things. Yeah, and honestly, like I kind of like the idea that he doesn't follow sort of the conventional path of what would be like the leading man archetype for a lot of these types of movies. And there's they're on the plane and like he's sort of like gatekeeping the nerddom and whatever. And then Laura Linney asks him, why teach an ape to speak? And he goes into this thing about like, why teach anybody anything? And he's like humble bragging about his own generosity. And I'm like, you know what? I kind of like the idea that like he's not the stereotypical lead in this movie because it is Laura Linney that is that character. And so I guess like I was just having to have some detachment from that because sort of the way that the movie is plotted out is that we're on board with him and his mission and returning Amy and sort of their relationship. And so I was like, okay, like the more I distance myself from it, I'm like, all right, he's just not that guy. And that's okay. Like he doesn't have to be that guy in this role. You have a lot of other like macho guys in this already. You know, you had uh, Joe Don Baker, you got Ernie Hudson. I mean, like Tim Curry, not so much, but uh, Delroy Lindo, you got a lot of macho characters. And then on top of that, you know, you have Laura Linney, who is this very high functioning, basically like an executive, a scientist, a badass, like she fills in all the blanks so that it doesn't have to be on Dylan Walsh and his character to do that. So it was just like, I don't know, I hadn't seen the movie in a long time. So it was just like me all of a sudden realizing this stuff that I didn't realize uh, in prior viewings. Yeah. Uh, And when you talk about all the stuff they get to do and she she has to fill in the blanks, I like how the tech company is that uh, safety net for her where if they need something, oh, send her character to get it. Like they they are able to go get the the balloon, the rafts, the 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 perimeter uh, protection lasers, like anything we need. It's like, oh, let's just write it in for her character to go find it. Yeah, I mean, it's great, though, because it's like she gets to really like be the hero on every front. Like she she provides all of the financial support. She provides like all of the connections that they need on the ground. And then when they're in the biggest pinch, she's like, well, guess what? You know, what we can do with these diamonds. We could turn into a fucking laser bazooka and just go to town. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that about her. Um, but I wanted to ask you to. It, I found it interesting that this movie chose Africa because it feels like, I mean, obviously the book is taking place. The book is called Congo, so it's going to take place in Africa. But there was also this thing of like movies in the early 90s, like going to Africa. I mean, we, I just talked to somebody in a previous episode about uh, Ernest Scared Stupid, and one of the Ernest sequels goes to Africa. I mean, Lion King had really popularized it. Um, there was the Kevin Bacon basketball movie, The Air Up There, where they's like he goes to Africa. And so like there's this fascination, I think, with Africa as this place of mystery and adventure and all these things that it was kind of untapped. And so I found it interesting that that sort of existed prior to this movie. But then when we get to this movie, there is a war going on in the Congo when they get there and they don't hide that fact and it sort of trickles down into all of the relationships whether it be ernie hudson or delroy lindo or tim curry or joey pants like all these people are very aware of the precarious political situation that's going on in africa Mm -hmm. and i didn't read congo the book so i don't know how big of a role that sort of turmoil plays but 
it seems like in the way it's communicated in the film is that they want us to understand that while it's this place of mystery, it's also this place of uh, danger, like not not just the gorillas either. Like you go there and it's like their plane is getting shot at. Right. Like there's rocket launchers, surface to air missiles trying to shoot them down. That's why they have to jump out of the plane. So like, did you feel that it was intentionally political or that it was used more as a crutch to communicate like danger in that area of the world? I haven't read the book, so I don't know, unfortunately, how much of that is in there. (laughs) (laughs) But but I do feel like it was integral to the plot of the movie, because if you if you really break it down, a lot of the decisions and choices that they have to make are because of that. That's Mm -hmm. the root problem, forcing them into all these situations. So I'm okay that it's in there. And it makes sense because that is a real thing that goes on. So it's not like they shoehorned in and made it up. I mean, it's a real deal. So that to me is more perilous than killer gorillas (laughs) is this, you know, your arm, they're going to pull you over and you're going to be in this camp and who knows what's going to happen to you. Like that's more frightening. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And then we get movies, you know, much further down the line, like a blood diamond where there is a consciousness uh, about what's actually happening in Africa, sort of the exploitation of the people of the land. And I think like there's a little bit of that here that, I mean, the whole movie doesn't spend time addressing it, but you have a lot of people that are involved sort of in the mission here that you're sort of greasing the wheels and you've got Delroy Lindo's character. Who's almost like a warlord. Who's like, look, you're coming in here. I shouldn't be helping you, but like, if you're going to have me like exploit my people and show me or you're going to come in here and like do this mission to go to this particular place and like t- take our resources as well. You better make it worth my while because all of this is crumbling around here. And so I think it definitely is like a driving factor in it. So I don't know if anybody listens to this and you have read Congo, the book, and you want to tell me about what Michael Crichton was saying about the sort of perilous situation in Africa, please do reach out to me. He probably does in the book. I'm sure there's some kind of a point or statement that he makes with it. Um, I do want to mention, though, again, with the perilous thing, when they when they grab them all and they're holding them in that room and Dylan Walsh's assistants like, oh, my God, this is so Kafka-esque or whatever. And the guy's all, who is this Kafka? <laughs> who is Kafka? Tell me. Yeah, they do. <laughs> I was like, like, they could kill you right now. <laughs> yeah, they did this whole uh like interrogation scene where it's like shot from these low angles and it's you know it's like classic uh sort of detective uh interrogation room stuff where yeah. you know they're going around they're getting in everybody's faces everybody's sweating but uh that whole moment like you said i think the the danger of it is sort of lost on the people that are coming in there just to do the mission right and so that scene where Delroy Lindo is asking them for more money and it's just it's Ernie Hudson, Laura Linney at the table and Delroy Lindo and they drop like 40 grand on the table and he's like more. <laughs> I'm like, what's stopping him from just taking the whole bag of money? That's what I said. What When my husband was watching with me, I, lo- I paused it. I looked at him. I go, why didn't they just take her money and confiscate it when they captured them? Like what? How does she even still have this bag of money? Yeah, you're in, <laughs> you're in a foreign land where you're relying on the help of a military warlord to aid your mission and you've been captured and you're just going to have like a bag that's filled with stacks of cash and casually like, Oh, okay. Well more. Okay. Well I have more. 
but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's armed guards all over the room. Like it would have made more sense to be like, okay, I'm going to help you, but I'm taking all your money. You're not having anything left. But if he just took her bag from her, then we wouldn't get the really funny bit where he yeah, puts it in true. his own bag and staples it shut. And then he says, <laughs> I don't want anybody peeking. <laughs> oh my God. He's so good in this movie. I yes. wish we got more of him, but I love his scene in this. Cause yeah, that whole dynamic in that room is crazy. Cause like Homolka's just there, like sort of observing. And when he gets caught with the sesame cake in his mouth, it's after he tells him, he's like, please eat the cake, you know, enjoy yourself. And so he's like mid bite where he looks at him and says, stop eating my sesame cake. And he just is like, oh, covers his mouth, looks around like, oh, OK, you gotcha, sir. And then like has to spit <laughs> it back up into his own it's hand. Him. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> yes, it's so good. And, you know, I do like that they. They show a lot in this movie, aside from that, when they're indoors, when they're all outdoors. I think they film this in Costa Rica for a lot of that. And it's so beautiful. We see real animals, yeah. real scenery. I absolutely, this movie's beautiful, really. A lot of the shots, I mean, chef's kiss to the direction on some of the balloon at the end, all of it. Yeah, I think it's a really good looking movie, to be honest. So. It's kind of weird that this movie has as bad of a reputation as it does, because like if you were to just like say you watch this movie with the sound off, like, do you feel like you would have the same kind of negative reaction? I don't think so, because I mean, it'd be weird to watch the whole movie with no sound. But <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying like the visual communication and the visual storytelling in this is pretty solid and you get some really fun moments. So unless you're like super off put by like the look of the phony gorillas, then okay, like maybe that's too much for you, but I don't know. Well, if, you're, if you're in the movie Congo, like you really expect like an actual gorilla? Right, right. And real animals to do these things on cue? No, like the, the hippo sequence when they get oh attacked. My God. So good. I Again, paused it because my husband was making comments and I'm like, you know, it, hippos, they actually are that nasty. They will yeah. really attack you. <laughs> I mean, they built these, did you said Stan Winston did it? Yeah. I mean, they look amazing. It's well shot to where you don't see too much of it where it looks fake, the hippos. And to me, terrifying. Don't attack me. <laughs> that's terrifying if I'm getting attacked. I don't care what it is, but maybe that's off-putting for people too. They're like, oh, really? The hippos attacked? Okay. But they really would. They're that nasty, I guess. Yeah. It's my understanding that hippos are the number one killer of man that's a mammal. I think, yeah, if if I'm not mistaken, I, I haven't looked it up in a while, but at least last time I checked, I think it was like mosquitoes and hippos were like number <laughs> one and two in most human deaths because, yeah, hippos are that big, that strong, yeah. where if you invade their space, they're very, very territorial. So it's like a water rhinoceros, but it has a huge mouth and it'll just bite the shit out of you. And so, you know, to to set this sort of expedition to go on these inflatable boats and to go uh, into the water and to be in a unfamiliar situation in the dark too while it's happening and then you have this big hippo attack I, I really think that's a great moment that actually sort of represents the dangers of the place that they're in far more accurately uh, and realistically than the the gray evil gorilla scene at the end right because it's like yeah we get that scene and that's like the big end of the movie but in terms of 
like what we were talking about at the outset of this sort of leaning into its horror elements, the hippo scene is a scene that similar to sort of what um, I was talking about in Jurassic Park of like this big creature that most people are like unfamiliar with that has the advantage of a being in its environment and b being in the dark sort of creates this element of fear, I think, that works really well in that moment. I don't remember, does anybody actually, like, die in the gorilla attack, or do they get out of it unscathed? At the end? Yeah, when they cross the river. I I think maybe one person got eaten by the hippo, but I can't remember, because it didn't seem like, they didn't stop to be like, oh, we lost Bobby over there. Oh, in the hippo scene. Yeah, Yeah. no, um, one of their guys is injured because the hippo grabs onto the raft and like deflates Mm. it and they're getting Mm -hmm. in the water and you assume one of their arms or legs got bit because they're pulling him out of the water and you can see his leg is bit because I immediately had a Jaws 3D flashback where they're pulling (laughs) Leah Thompson out and her thigh has a bite out of it. It was pretty much the same shot. (laughs) Smart, you know, you you got to borrow where you can. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I think one of the things that maybe people struggle with is the portrayal of Amy in this. Um, I like the fact that she can communicate and that she has a personality and that she is like an individual gorilla, whereas basically all the other gorillas that we deal with are either like part of a pack or they sort of exhibit the behaviors that you would expect from a gorilla. Like they run into a silverback in the wild and it's like just it postures and then it walks away. Right. Amy has a character. She speaks. She has uh, feelings. You know, she gets jealous. She gets angry. She she takes uh, Ernie Hudson's blunt from him in the back of the truck and just starts smoking. I'm like, wow. It's like, she's really into these like vices. She drinks, she smokes, you know, she, she gets jealous of the blonde woman. I'm like, okay. So like Amy is one of my favorite characters in this movie. Like, I don't think that she's my favorite because of some of the, the particular choices. Like, I mean, Tim Curry and Ernie Hudson are like having this battle of like, who can have the crazier accent in this movie. And so in that way, I love both of their performances so much that I I would say that they're probably higher on the scale of favorites. But I love that Amy gets to be a character in this movie and that she gets to show range and to have this motherly instinct to protect and all that stuff. So bringing that up, let me ask you this. Did you think that it was really possible? Because his goal is now that he's releasing her in the wild, Dylan Walsh, he's like, well, she's going to teach the other gorillas now. We're going to let her. (laughs) It's like, what? The other gorillas aren't humanized like Amy. And they're not going to have the speaking, you know, voice pack and the arm thing like Amy. Like, I don't understand what he thinks is going to happen there. Um, uh, yeah. Is this like a prequel to Planet of the Apes kind of thing <laughs> where <laughs> she teaches them all sign language and then they take over Africa and go from there? Like, OK, I get maybe best case scenario. She teaches them some signs and they use that within their gorilla tribe to communicate. But really, like that then removes the sort of like altruism from Dylan Walsh's character. Because if your goal is to just implant her as this hyper-intelligent gorilla and have her then like pass her teachings along to the other gorillas, that's not coming from a place of let me return Amy to her home so she can live life as a gorilla in the wild as nature intended. So it is like, again, it points to quote-unquote shitty Peter 
So I understand why Amy called him shitty Peter, because there's a lot of times in this movie where he's shitty. (laughs) (laughs) I like that she's smart enough to recognize it, too. Absolutely. She's like, I'm not buying your bullshit. I work with you every day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I'm glad that you thought the same thing, because I was like, what the hell? Yeah, but she's, you know, she's also sort of childlike in the way that I think she smashes like the satellite when they get to camp. So she's just like running around playing. It's like, oops, I broke your super expensive satellite. So (laughs) we're cut off again. And then he just kind of looks at Laura Linney like, well, you know, she is a gorilla. Kids will be kids. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so so they treat her in a way where they they need her to be like the fulcrum for the story because they like, hey, have no reason to go to Africa uh, without her. They they all center around this mission to get on this chartered flight and get back there. So they need her to be sort of the catalyst. They need her to play some important roles in it. Um, So I love that she got to have more than just like, oh, she's, you know, a monkey that can talk because she actually gets to communicate some real emotion rather than just like, I'm hungry, you know, I'm happy, I'm sad, that kind of thing. I think, you yeah, you can't overthink it in order to enjoy this movie. You have to kind of just roll with it because I realized on this last watch, I was picking all of these little things apart. Mm-hmm. And um, I do that for my show anyway. I have to pick things yeah. apart. And I was like, I don't want to pick apart a movie I love, but <laughs> but I was. And another thing I noticed, aside from the Amy stuff, I have to point this out, is at the end, when they're in the hot air balloon to to get away, they don't get shot down. They're in the same flipping airspace. <laughs> Moving much slower. Explain that to me, please. Red hot air balloon. <laughs> I was like, oh, whatever at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe the war had raged on over the course of the evening and they had moved away from that section uh, of the jungle. But man, this movie's got like so much stuff in it. And I think there was a point where. You know, I'm sure you've seen Anaconda, right? So there was a point where I sort of looked at Anaconda as a knockoff of Jaws. And -hmm. I think the more I watched this movie, I was like, no, Anaconda is a version of this type of movie, not of Jaws, because it follows a lot of the we're going into this like place to find this hidden thing. And we've got john voigt's grifty kind of shysty character getting involved and then we're getting hunted in the river by this thing and so i like i was like anaconda is definitely a movie i gotta do on the show at some point as well but i <laughs> feel do. like i you feel do. like it was far more connected to this than jaws and i just i put that in as like a side note because i was like huh i you know what i never really really wrapped my head around that part of it but i, well, I gotta say that it it has all of the same DNA. It it does. And the Jaws thing, Voight's character is very much the Quint. Yeah. Evil Quint. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, PG-13 also and yeah. brisk hour and a half. It's got all the elements of, of this film, I think, more than Jaws. So it's a fun watch for me. Anaconda, love it or hate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, John Hawks is also in this movie. Great actor as well very good character actor too and he was just hired to scream and die you brought him in for one scene to have a freak out and then instantly die now he's the one uh, that the tribe finds his body yes correct correct Mm -hmm. that scene when i saw that shot in the trailer just now i was like wow they make it look 
like the tribe could be involved in what's happening in the trailer. But what a great scene in the movie. Like it really kind of grounds you and connects you that this is the world you're in. You're not in, you know, the U S anymore. We're not in Kansas anymore. Exactly. And what what an effective scene. I felt sad. Yeah. Like they brought in this, this great actor to just die, but what an effective thing. He sees Amy and freaks out and has a heart attack. Like (laughs) he literally is scared to death in that moment. And so again, this is this thing of like, I think at its core, this movie wants so badly to be a horror movie. And it feels like in order to be successful and maybe, you know, I mean, the box office did reflect that it was successful, but I think it felt like because of a Jurassic Park coming before this, that it had to be a certain type of movie and couldn't really be the horror movie that it wanted to be. But yeah, like you literally bring in a guy, have him scared literally to death. And then it's like, yeah, okay, well, on with the action. It's like, that's like, this is your friend. Like Laura Linney knew this character and we don't really get anything. I don't even think he has a speaking line. He wakes up, they sort of get him out of his uh, catatonic state. And then, yes, he's Amy and dies. And she's, you know, she doesn't have time to mourn. It's like, okay, well, our mission is still going on. I guess just uh, what do we do with this guy's body now? Eh. I do. I do like, though, she she doesn't (laughs) even get emotional when she She finds Bruce Campbell's body too later. (laughs) It's like crusty corpse. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She doesn't have a minute to mourn there either. It's like, okay. (laughs) That's true. I mean, they're they're under like heavy guerrilla assault at that point. So she doesn't really have time. But doesn't she doesn't she like pry the key diamond out of his dead? Yes. It's like you're in a room where there's diamonds every few feet. Why did you have to take the one that's covered in like coal and smash it in a dramatic fashion after plucking it from your dead lover's hand you could have picked up the one that was on the ground and well, put when you it say into it, your laser gun <laughs> when you say it that way <laughs> i know yeah. it's it's a little melodramatic in that way but uh <laughs> i love that there's also like they stumble across the plane crash of uh like the secondary mission that comes to find them so it gives you this idea that there is this large scale effort to do what they're doing and that you sort of like wasted human life very casually in this way of you don't trust the people that you sent. So we sent a, a secondary expedition after you and that plane gets shot down and there's no survivors, as far as I recall, on that plane. But the John Hawks character was a survivor from Bruce Campbell's expedition, I think. So it's like you've sent three different expeditions into this same part of the world. None of them have been successful, really. And the amount of money that they casually throw around here is like, wow, Joe Don Baker's character, R.B. Travis, just is he's loaded and he's so invested in these diamonds. I mean, I guess that tells you like how valuable the diamonds really are to him and to them that got to have that next cash cow. Exactly. (laughs) They say that more than once. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's going to be diamonds. We're going to use them to run our satellite television company. (laughs) Question mark. Yeah. Right. Not, not just valuable diamonds that are inherently valuable because they're diamonds, but diamonds that specifically help their telecom business. (laughs) Well, we have to just realize how evil he is. Yeah. Exactly. He's that evil. <laughs> He's going to send all these people to perish. 
I know. He do- yeah, he doesn't really get the kind of comeuppance that I would have liked for a character like oh, not that. At all. Yeah. No, he's not yet because he never has to set foot on the ground there. It's like, oh, you blew up my satellite, but obviously we've got more because we're, you know, a telecom <laughs> business. So the mm-hmm. one kind of sucked and I don't get my diamonds. And well, but the, it seems like the they're only... just going to move on after that. Yes. The only comeuppance he gets is when she throws the diamond away at the end. Like he's mm-hmm. not going to get this diamond. Oh, you think he's not going to send more people in to find it? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's already sent three expeditions and it's going to be on. Congo, too. <laughs> <laughs> Electric Boogaloo. Yes. Hey, I, I would watch it. <laughs> uh how do you feel about doing some trivia right now let's do it time for trivia all right let's see question number one while the film is set in the african congo the volcan arenal volcano is actually an active volcano where i'm gonna guess costa rica that is correct. I know you had mentioned it earlier. I was like, ding, oh, ding, she's ding. a step ahead of me this time. <laughs> well, I just had looked where they filmed because I remembered how beautiful this movie was. And I thought, I have to know where they filmed it. Yeah. It, I mean, I like that they have this sort of like tropical element to it. And it really is like this dense rainforest. And it gives you the vibe that you want from it. And so, like, I wasn't aware. Like, a lot of it looks like sound stages, but a lot of it also looks very authentic. So, I it wasn't until this kind of read through of the trivia where I'm like, oh, they actually did shoot in Costa Rica. Did you watch any of the behind the scenes footage that you can find online or or on the did, the I disc? Know. So, the volcano they went and filmed there for some of it and filmed live footage of it, but then they recreated it in a miniature mm-hmm. on a sound stage, and the scene at the end of the movie with the volcano exploding and them trying to get away is a combination of green screen, miniature, and live footage. Very, very cool. That's where the budget went. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of ingenuity there. And I mean, a couple years after this, we have Volcano, the one uh, in L.A. Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones (laughs) and Anne Hesch. And as part of like the disaster movies that I was watching at the time, uh, also watched Dante's Peak, which I love. Another volcano movie that has to like use... uh, some like CGI moments here, some yes. practical effects. Sarah Connor's uh, in that one. Oh yeah, she is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so to see that like this movie sort of predates those movies by a couple of years and really like effectively does its volcano effects and sort of like uses that as a, a background element rather than as the primary element uh, was very interesting. And yeah, reading that they were able to sort of cultivate this look by recreating it with miniatures and then balancing it out with all of like the practical filmmaking techniques and just didn't immediately jump to cgi uh i know there was some talk about trying to do the gorillas in cgi here to make it look sort of more gorilla like and not like someone wearing a gorilla suit but at the time you know cgi hadn't caught up to doing animal hair very well so they passed and i think honestly it's better for it Uh, for having the actual practical suits in this case, because in one of the episodes I did for the show, we talked about uh, King Kong uh, and it was the De Laurentiis 1976 King Kong. And that how Rick Baker did all of like the, the suit work and how that is so much more effective in that movie than the animatronic work that they did. So just having that knowledge going into rewatching this, I'm like, yeah, you know what? Like the suit is the best way to do this at this time 
And even now, I think like what came after this, like Mighty Joe Young or mm-hmm. right. And then I like Rampage came after this. And then there was another King Kong, like in the early two, I think in 2005 was Guillermo's King Kong. Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. Sorry. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have like a lot of gor- like CGI gorilla stuff coming not too far after this. But, you know, two years before this, you have Jurassic Park sort of revolutionizing how CGI can be used uh, effectively. But. You know, well, an- animal hair was always tough. The Amy suit you get you get to see in its all its glory, which can be, again, off putting for people who are like, oh, I roll. That's obviously a person in a suit. But the menacing gorillas, the, the the silverback and his bunch and then the scary, you know, killer gorillas at the end, they shoot it in a way, again, props to the direction where you don't just sit on it like you do on Amy. It's blurry, it's fast, it's crazy angles. So you don't really see how maybe bad the suits might look Yeah, if you were just on a still shot on them. So to me, that's effective. That's a great way to shoot practical suits like that. Yeah, I was reading that like Stan Winston wasn't like happy with the sort of way that they shot the end sequence because the lighting was not ideal for the suits because it like, I guess the light was like a little too harsh. So you see everything and you don't really hide much and you're not able to cast them in like a, a shadow that makes them maybe scarier than they would be. But I mean, shit, you end up in like a diamond mine with a bunch of white gorillas raining down on you. That's that's scary enough for me <laughs> to get it across the finish line. I forgot that we're doing trivia right now. Yes. So question number trivia. two. <laughs> uh, Michael Crichton initially envisioned Congo as a vehicle for which famous James Bond actor? Hmm. I'm going to guess Sean Connery. It was Sean Connery. <laughs> uh, that would have been a very interesting version of Congo because I feel like his the idea of Connery being that lead maybe trickled down into like separating that into several characters. Because it's like I think he would probably be sort of like the Ernie Hudson, the Laura Linney and the Tim Curry almost all in one. Well, you have to look at characteristics of bond you have to look at that jungle movie he did called medicine man uh he's in indiana jones and the last crusade so he could embody that tomb raider type character very well league of extraordinary gentlemen Mm -hmm. so 100 i could see that but it's a different movie if you cast sean connery oh absolutely and i think that sort of was like that was floated around when they were still insistent on having the real gorilla play amy and Sean Connery, like, I'm not acting opposite an actual gorilla. Hell you've no. got <laughs> hell no. <laughs> I value my life too much for this. So we will not be doing that. Uh, <laughs> well, wait, let me ask you. You're an actor. You're offered this role with a live gorilla. What is your what is your pay? What is, you're like, I'll do it for X amount. Is there no amount? I mean, it has to be like life changing money. Or, oh, so you would. Or I just say, I'm not a pound of sugar. I'm a primatologist. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not for sale. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Like, we'd have to be talking billions of dollars. And you'd have to be like, this gorilla is safe. I need to see this gorilla act with some other people that are still alive <laughs> before I even consider this. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Fair. Definitely not what they would have been paying the top actor for this movie. That's for sure. (laughs) Fair. Okay. Uh, And question number three. The last question of the round. says, the diamonds we see during the film's climax are actually what? Just crystals. 
They, yeah, they're technically two-ended quartz crystals on loan from the Herkimer Diamond Mines of Middleville, New York. Herkimer? Yeah. Like Herkimer and... Homolka? <laughs> exactly. Tim Carey's character was named Herkimer as a result, Ooh. I think, as a nod to that mine. And I, if I read it correctly, the character in the book doesn't have a first name. So this was something that they did as like a thank you. And in reading a little bit more, uh, Dylan Walsh's character named Peter Elliott was named after the guerrilla choreographer and a performer who does all of the choreography and even performs in this movie. So there's a little bit of that going on uh, as well. So I, I, I think, yes, they, they definitely made that an intentional inclusion for them. That's awesome. I didn't yeah, know great. that, but it made sense. <laughs> yeah, because when I, I I first heard the trivia, I was like, wait a second, these are actual diamonds? I was like, no way they're giving them <laughs> no gigantic baseball-sized diamonds. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, they're crystal quartz from a diamond mine. So I guess technically they're actually diamonds. They're just not diamonds that like have the kind of value that yeah. the ones that go into engagement rings and jewelry and stuff. So... Before we before we end, I have to completely say some other random comment that oh, has nothing to do with do. what we're talking about. <laughs> because they were on location, and then they did such a good job making the set water look like it's jungle water. Mm-hmm. I had to just cringe every time somebody went in the water in this movie because I was like, what kind of bacteria hell are you jumping into with all your orifices open and sucking it in? Like, <laughs> just and Bruce Campbell jumps mm-hmm. in the water. I'm like, oh, don't do that in the jungle there. You don't know what's in there. Yeah. His his buddy's already in there. Like, come on in. It's fine. <laughs> I just had to mention that. That that bothers me every time I watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. It's like it looks like gross, like city rainwater from the streets. But I mean, there is a moment yeah. later where Dylan Walsh ends up with a, like a leech or some creature on his junk as a result of going in the water. And okay. he has to burn it off with one of Ernie Hudson's blunts. Yes. As a man, <laughs> I don't know what that would be like, but you're the man here. You tell me, did that make you cringe every, like you cringe when you see that scene? <laughs> uh, I mean, I cringed more this time when he hands the cigar back to Ernie Hudson, like he's going to continue <laughs> smoking it. <laughs> that part, he's just like, uh, Ernie Hudson. Okay, thanks. And then throws it away. Uh, but yeah, that scene is very much like intentional to do this thing of like oh your masculinity is in jeopardy by being here and i think that sort of shadows like the course of the movie at that point where you know at that point amy has already kind of like talked down to him and sort of you know make me a drink or i'll rip your arms and legs off kind of thing and laura linney has taken over as the party leader and she's like really the capable one so it is this challenge i think to this character's masculinity in a very direct way if you're not picking up on the other stuff Yeah, not subtle. <laughs> not uh, not at all. Uh, I don't know if you know any actual sign language, but as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, did is Amy sign language accurate? Like, <laughs> I was thinking that too because no, unfortunately, I don't know any um, sign language. But I would be curious to know if that's all accurate stuff she's doing. Why? Why wouldn't it be? Why would they try to really do so much of it and fake it? That seems yeah. like it'd be rude to me on their part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because uh, it's like when I see Dylan Walsh, like there's certain uh, hand signals that he gives where I'm like, OK, I recognize that and I know that that's right. But with her, like she doesn't 
sort of like use her appendages with her fingers in the same way that he does because he's like maybe spelling out individual letters and i'm like mm -hmm. okay that's right that's right I, I at least know a couple of things but with her it's a lot of like full gestures where it's communicating phrases and not individual letters and yeah i just i I didn't stop to like think whether or not they took the time to actually like train this person that's going to be in the suit to really understand American Sign Language or not. I just assumed. I assumed it was correct, <laughs> but I'd be curious to know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'll have to look it up. Maybe I'll yeah. insert that after the fact or just be like, hey, I don't know. I didn't do the work this time. Sorry, everybody. If you want to know, watch Congo and then <laughs> and then read about it. Uh, but yeah, I read a lot of the trivia and none of it was about sign language. So I would have to watch like the special features. And I surprisingly do not own like a DVD or Blu-ray copy of this. But that might change here pretty soon because I think in 4K, this would probably look pretty good because of all of the practical stuff that gets done. As a fan of the movie, I would want a 4K for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so li listeners, if anybody out there knows, please write in because we want to know. <laughs> was it accurate? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You can reach out to me. You can find me uh, on Bad Movies We Love on, I guess it's X now or yeah. Instagram. You can email me at badmovieswelove at com. Do it. I'd love to hear from you about Congo, especially. Uh, I want to ask you, too, do you feel like. Like Amy saves the day, right? I mean, she comes in here. She protects shitty Peter again because it's like he gets yanked into the middle of the monkey fight and they're about ready to, you know, rip his face off and she descends and gathers him up and, you know, she's holding him. Amy, they're freaked out Amy by her noises. Mother, Amy, good yeah. gorilla, right? So yeah. do they do they fear her? Because she's like ready to fight for Peter, which is nice. It's like, yeah. I'm happy to see that, like, she's, you know, she's gnashing her teeth. She's ready for like the physical conflict. And I think those gorillas probably haven't seen like a regular female gorilla ever. I think they're freaked out by her equipment because she's talking to them. Yeah. That's like true. a sound is coming off of her <laughs> and they're like, what is happening right now? I think they're just freaked out. And so that they, that's that moment where they can get away. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. So they had her so vastly outnumbered. I was trying to sort of pin down like what would just stop them from fighting her anyway, because right. I mean, within the, within like the chimp hierarchy, or I mean, I guess these aren't technically chimpanzees, but within sort of like monkey groups, it's my understanding that there are a lot of physical conflicts and fights between them. Anyway. I, I remember watching uh, the Disney documentary chimpanzee that came out. I don't know, probably like six, seven years ago at this point, but yeah, there's like, there's, they're following this one tribe that, is at war with like another tribe that are competing over like a food resource in the area. So this like violence within the species is not completely out of the question. Uh, so I was like, what is it? <laughs> what, what is it about Amy that is like really scaring them off? Cause she doesn't come across like that intimidating. Oh, the, these killer gorillas have no problem with monkey on monkey crime. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, because because there, there's skulls of other gorillas and stuff along with the human remains and all these remains they find. So they have no qualms about doing that. I think she just spooks them with the talking. Oh, OK. They're like, oh, my yeah. God, she's she's got she's got hand gestures and stuff like this. What is, is a little this? Intense. Yeah. yeah, we'll we'll leave her alone for now. And mm -hmm. then conveniently, in the meantime, Laura Linney is like building her, you know, diamond space laser in the background. And then. <laughs> You know, the music comes on and it's like the big action sequence there at the end. But like, I love that scene. Like she's just slicing these gorillas up. I'm like, this is great. 
this is really good stuff here. I wish there would have been like a little bit more of that, but I understand like this is the big climax of the film. You can't just like have a laser gun the entire time or it really sort of makes things unfair. It's like, oh, we went into the Congo equipped with a laser gun. Like, yeah, of course you're going to be chopping these gorillas in half. Oh, it's amazing. Well, you do get to see one of them completely get lasered in half. (laughs) Yeah. Because like, yeah, they do a couple wide shots where she she hits the laser beam and then like she hits like four or five, six of them in one straight line. But it's like it's not a close up. I think, yeah, you see the one get his like hand sliced off and the other one gets cut in half. So you get some really, really great moments there. And that was the that was the aha moment of like, damn, I wish Laura Linney would have like gotten more opportunities to be that Ellen Ripley type of character and do the action stuff. You know, what made me sad, though, was um, I think it's Hermolka gets his head squashed. Oh, yeah. But we don't actually see the actual squashing or the end result. But I was like, what a gruesome, horrific death for this man who is just kind of mildly a shady guy he's not evil (laughs) no he's not but they give him a great death that we really don't get to see yeah because again that would be like oh we pushed the envelope to r but yeah they crush his head like a watermelon just (laughs) monkey claps its hands together like the incredible hulk and his head just happens to be in between that would have been great to see but then yeah that's definitely rated all right (laughs) yeah so i'm curious we never got yeah, I'm curious if like the Blu-ray has those sort of like extra violent deleted scenes because we get the scene where it's uh, Grant Heslov's character, Richard, like, I mean, he's running around without his heart for like a minute and a half. And then we find out that like the heart is not in his chest, but we don't get the moment where the monkey sticks its hand into his rib cage and pulls his heart out, you know, so the the graphic violence of it is toned down enough to where it's like, OK, you see a prop. You see some blood. You don't see the moment of the actual super impactful violence. I'd I'd be okay and be here for it if we just got because maybe they didn't even shoot it because we don't see it at all. But what Mm -hmm. I'm wondering is if you know that they let the camera roll when they're shooting. So maybe the head squashing scene, they they shot it and they cut it. But maybe the rest of the scene played out and it's out there. Same thing with some of the horrific stuff. Maybe they kept the camera rolling. And so there is some of that footage out there. I'm guessing they didn't actually shoot that scene with the monkey attacking him. But I'd be here for it if any extra footage popped up. Yeah, because it's like after he gets his head squashed, too, I don't think we see like his body in the background with like a smashed head, you know, where you could have just had like the the dummy there with, you know, paint on the floor or whatever, fake blood and some (laughs) some pumpkin innards or whatever. So it looks like that happened but again like i think that is sort of maybe a little too intense for the vibe that they were going for in that moment because yeah we're pivoting to to heroic female laser gun and so if you pan into a wide shot and you've got his poor body there with his (laughs) smashed in skull it's like that's that's pretty gnarly but uh m-u-m-p-a-a right i know but the (laughs) the practical effects work in this movie are so good i think they could have pulled that kind of stuff off pretty damn well had they actually gotten the opportunity to oh agreed yeah all right well i think I think before we go to Critics Corner, is there anything that you that you really wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to? We covered pretty much all of it. Um, and and at the end, I, again, I wanted to say the Laura Linney callback where she again points out 
to her boss. Remember I told you, if for a moment I doubt you sent me here for anything other than Charles. And then she goes crazy and, you know, kills everything, gets rid of the diamond, the whole shebang. I was like, oh, I loved her character. Her character was so smart. So take charge. And then they had to throw that in again at the end. And I was kind of like, wah, wah. Like, did you not realize that that's why you were sent here in the first place was for the diamond? Yeah, because it's just like a repetition of the conversation that they've already had where it would have been, you know, a little bit more not I don't know if heroic is the right word, but a little bit more based in her revenge and retribution if if they get on the call and she's like i fucking warned you and then just (laughs) and then blow the satellite up like that would have been nice but again they're like nah this is pg-13 like we can't we can't end this with an f-bomb right at the end she can blow up the satellite and everything and they can have their little conflict but i want to see congo 2 where she gets back to the states and she's like really pissed at this guy Congo too. Let's make it happen. Hey, Jodan Baker's still around, right? So yeah, I, so Laura Linney's still around too. She's probably at the there. height of. Her. I we couldn't afford her for this one. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, she's she's too much of a prestige actress now. But be like, hey, do you want to you want to wield a laser gun and slice up a bunch of gorillas again? I don't know. I'd be how curious. Do you, how do you even do that in the states, though? I I have no idea. Maybe it's like she yeah, because would she gonna go into a zoo? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's a little too dark. That's going to be NC-17 there. <laughs> Laura's Revenge. I'd watch it. <laughs> I mean, I'll watch anything that she does, but uh, yeah, I think now's a good time. We go to Critics Corner. This has a very abysmal Metascore of 22. I mean, this is better than Battlefield Earth, which I just did recently, which had a Metascore of, I think, zero. So, Did, did you like that one? I w- What we came to the understanding was that when my expectations were gone the second time I watched it, it was much more palatable. Okay. When when I went into it the first time thinking like this is a big sci-fi epic, I was like, oh, yeah, the reputation as a horrible movie is well warranted. And then when I watched it one afternoon on like cable TV, like a Saturday afternoon, just like a throwaway, I'm like, you know what? This is not that far off from being a significantly better movie. But it seems like every time there was a decision of like, should we do this thing or this thing? The decision that got made was always the one that made the movie worse. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) this this does start off with a zero, though. Somebody did give this movie a zero. And that's uh, Steve Davis from the Austin Chronicle says jaw droppingly bad. This adaptation of Michael Crichton's 1980 novel about a talking ape named Amy and a fabled lost city deep in the jungles of Central Africa is as sophisticated in execution as a jungle gym movie. That's that's harsh. That's like way harsh. That is. And I have to wonder what version he saw, because it wasn't the one that we're watching. Yeah. And at at the end of the day, like, okay, I'm not going in to watch a movie about uh, a talking gorilla expedition for its (laughs) headiness. You know, I'm not like, oh, my God, I'm looking for really like sophisticated storytelling here. This is a mid 90s action flick at its heart. So I get it. Like, it's not Jurassic Park, but like even Jurassic Park still has fun with itself. Like, yes, it's a little bit more intellectual, like it's a little bit more nuanced with its approach to science fiction. But at the same time, like the thing about Jurassic Park that made it iconic was like the awe 
of the dinosaurs and like the interaction with the people. It wasn't like Jurassic Park. Oh, my God. I left that movie feeling like it's Jurassic Park's the most intelligent, sophisticated movie I've ever seen. Like, that's not what made it the phenomenon that it was like. It is intelligent in how it handles its storytelling. But like, yeah, what did, what did you expect from Congo is my question, Mr. Davis. Right. A T-Rex eats a man off a toilet. Like, come on. It's yeah. Jurassic Park. <laughs> so, yeah, but with Congo, <laughs> I think the critics had that comparison in mind because they're like, oh, OK, the source material. We did it with this one. Now we're going to do it with this one. So it better be equally as good. And it's a completely different movie than Jurassic Park. So I don't think it's fair to go in with that high expectation, but it's just me. Yeah, like Jurassic Park is a sci-fi adventure film. And this is more of uh, an action adventure in the vein of like an Indiana Jones type of movie. So, look, I know that Steven Spielberg made Jurassic Park and Indiana Jones, but you can't line those up next to each other and be like, hey, these are supposed to be the same thing and the same structure. It's like these are different stories with different elements, with different cores, with different motivations. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Mr. Davis. I think you. You really unfairly judged in this Agreed. case. Zero is way harsh on this. <laughs> I give you a zero, Mr. Davis. <laughs> yeah, Austin Chronicle. Uh, okay, so let's see. Um, let's jump over the 20 because there's a bunch of 25s, and I'm going to let you pick your poison. We've got San Francisco Chronicle, San Francisco Examiner, uh-oh, and the Christian Science Monitor. Oh, I'll give Christ- it a 25. Christian Science Monitor, please. I have to know their angle, their, the okay. way they saw this. <laughs> I gave it a 25. This is David Starrett. One thing is certain. It's a bomb trying to be a hit. And at that, it'll never succeed. I, I don't know. It made $150 million, right? In Hollywood standards, if you go three times the budget, you're a hit. So yeah, the movie it. was successful. So <laughs> it's definitely not a bomb. As much as critics wanted to pan this and like make mm-hmm. sure that it wasn't successful, it was financially successful. That's an inarguable point. Like, don't you feel like that's what they do? They review yeah. movies because it's happening now with with uh, Exorcist Believer, which I haven't seen, so I don't have an right. opinion. But it's like the critics make it their mission sometimes to sabotage a movie. Why? Just let them let people go see it and make judge for themselves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, speaking of Exorcist, like uh, I was talking to a friend of mine on Twitter and I he was asking, like, should I go see this tonight? And I was like, my default answer is always yes. Go see it and make up your mind for yourself. Like, don't let somebody else prejudge it for you. And my response was like, look, maybe the only reason that I'm in it is for Leslie Odom. But at the same time, like I want to support him. So I'm going to go see it. I was like, worst case scenario, it turns out to be like not a great movie. But guess what? Like, I've seen way worse than what I feel (laughs) that this movie's floor will be. I've seen way worse than that. So it's not going to be this like horrible failure on any scale for me. And somebody in the comments decided to chime in with like, oh, I really like Leslie Odom, but it pains me that I'm not going to go watch this movie. I'll just wait for it to come to like streaming or something and so it became this thing of like oh even though i say i like this person uh i'm not interested in actually like going to bat for that position and look it's like there's plenty of movies that i wait until they come to streaming for and those are typically ones where it's like i am not interested in the 
person that is like the lead or I'm not interested in the creatives or I'm just not interested in the story. And I'm, I'm perfectly fine waiting on that. So it's not this condemnation of like, oh, you need to go spend X amount of money. But if your point by responding to me was to just like agree that Leslie Odom is great and worth giving a chance, then give him the chance rather right. than pre-qualifying it with like, oh, I've heard so many bad things that even though I typically would be interested in this, and even though I do like Leslie Odom, I'm not going to go see this movie. Like, it's just a, it was like a real weird thing yeah. that like rubbed me the wrong way. And I was just like, eh. I was like, I don't know. Just if you don't think it's going to be good, then that's fine. But if you like horror movies and you like going during, you know, Halloween season to go see horror movies, then just go check it out. What's the worst that could happen? You don't have a great time. Like, that's not that bad. You got to go see a movie in a movie theater. Like, that's really (laughs) like, that's a pretty decent day, even if it's a bad movie. Right. Especially after the last few years. Yeah. Take it. Take the win. But see, that's what I'm saying about the about the the review for the for Congo. That's why I made the comparison, because it's like sometimes you think they see it right away before everybody else gets a chance and they want to make sure that it tanks. And I'm like, well, are you a good person if that's all you're doing is making sure people don't go see movies? Are you really being a fair critic at that point? No, I don't think so. And I think my personal relationship to it has been that I don't like rate movies on a scale anymore. Like I used to. And then it got to the point where I'm like, eh, this just feels like wrong in some way. Like if I were the one making a film and then somebody's like, well, I think this is like a three out of 10. I'm like, it's just like that relationship to it was something that didn't work for me anymore. And I was like, I need to let go of that. And I I feel like my movie going experience has gotten better because of it, because I think this year, let's see, what are we several or a couple hundred days into the year, right? We've got like three months left. And so I'm not quite on pace for one every day, but I'm definitely in the multiple hundreds. I think I've seen 100 movies from 2023. And realistically, there's like four movies (laughs) where I was just like, meh, I didn't like it. Like, really, like I probably could have used my time better. But other than that, I feel like there's probably a good thing to take away from the vast majority of movies. And I try to always take away the good thing, which is why this show exists, because I think there's more good things that are in the bad movies than people are like willing to acknowledge for the sake of let me tear something down in order to prop myself up kind of thing. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Yep. All right. Well, we got to get back into the negatives now. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we get a 30. From the Washington Post, that's Dessen Thompson. Well, I've read Dessen before. As if aware that Congo is the least interesting adventure film ever filmed, screenwriter John Patrick Shanley, who once wrote a funny movie called Moonstruck, tries to inoculate the activities with humor. Wow, that's that's a mouthful right there. Uh, so least how interesting I don't know how much film ever. Yeah. And and the comedy aspects, I would argue, sir, work in this film. And it's the screenwriter and maybe some material from the book. But this movie's got great comedy elements in it. Yeah. And I think if you can, like, I think we sort of latched onto the things that we like, that we found were funny and understood that this is like action adventure comedy. Right. And so maybe if you're like, if you read the book and you're like, okay, the book is really like this, like scary horror adventure or adventure story. And the movie doesn't like hit those marks. I could see you being disappointed, but this isn't even a comparison to the novel. This is just 
oh, this guy wrote a, a great movie at one point and he's trying to inject humor here. He's like, no, no the humor is there. You have a talking gorilla. <laughs> okay. Uh, have you have you not figured this out before like the, the first like 15 minutes of the movie? If you're not on board with it at that point, then just like, I don't know what to tell you. If you if you don't find humor in a talking gorilla, then like this movie's definitely not for you. It's the same thing that we pointed out when we did American Werewolf in Paris. Yeah. If 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 you don't know what movie you're turning on and you don't know what you're in for, why are you bothering? You yeah, have and, to know what you're in for. <laughs> yeah, and I read something interesting too recently that I felt was uh a good way to put it and uh, as guy I, I know on x his name is seth i think it's seth stoger not seth who i just did battlefield earth with but he said that when when you watch a movie the goal isn't to be like did this movie give me what i want or not it's you need to meet the movie at its level and like is the movie doing what the movie is set out to do and if that's the case, then even if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't mean the movie is a failure or that the movie didn't do things the say the right way. It's that the movie did things its way and it just doesn't speak to you individually. And I think like the the more I've done this show, the more I've like written about movies over the last few years, the more I realize that like the your experience with seeing a movie is much more directly related to who you are than it is about the movie. Like how you respond to movies says more about you than it does about the film itself. Yes. And I think that a lot of people uh, with this one, you couple that your own, your own experience and, and going in expecting something. And then you're like, well, that's not, that's not what I expected. That's not what I wanted from this movie. And like you said, you have to take it for what it is, meet it at its, at its level. And if you put too many expectations on anything, yeah. any movie, there you're going to be let down. And I feel like some of these critics, that they're, they're just being critical for for critical sake. They're not just trying to sit back and enjoy what they want us to have in an experience watching this. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems like that's part of the business. Is like my my brand is tearing apart things that I think are shit, and so mm -hmm. like I'm going to lean into that. Where it's like, you know, Roger Ebert was always a very good example of like, even when he didn't like a movie, he typically pointed to the thing that he liked and was like, look, this is a star making performance for so and so this thing is good. I ultimately gave it two thumbs down or whatever, you know, so he was at least willing to acknowledge that like the two things can coexist. This movie doesn't necessarily work for me in the way that I would preferred. But here's what does work about it and why. And, you know, make your own decision based on, you know, that recommendation. Uh, let's see. We got I'm going to go New York Times. This is Elvis okay. Mitchell. It's a 40. It says this glib overheated film about vicious primates delivers little suspense, nor are there signs of the 65 cited volumes and articles that turned Mr. Crichton's book into such a learning experience. So there you go. This guy read Congo, the book. And was like, this isn't the book. So I'm going to take a hot, steaming, overheated dump on this. <laughs> <laughs> and so you and I didn't read the book. So we're like, hey, this is great. This is, right? this is what we want. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's it. The, the blind ignorance going in. <laughs> hey, sometimes ignorance is bliss and that's okay. Uh, oh, speaking of Roger Ebert, 
Look who comes crawling in here at the end with a 75 out of 100. Eeb, from the 75? Chicago. Yeah, that's a three out of four on his scale. That's like pretty damn good. Chicago Sun-Times, Roger Ebert says, the result is not a movie that is very good exactly, but it's entertaining and funny. Three out of four stars from Eebs. That's a wow. great way to close it out. I didn't realize that was his at the end. I saw one green one at a 75. Yay. and I was like, oh, we'll get to that. And then surprise, surprise. Eves comes to save the day. All right. So as I, I was like kissing his ass about his <laughs> review style, he's like, yeah, the movie's not very good, but it's entertaining and it's funny. So yeah, three out of four. Like that's way better than most of the movies that he has reviewed that I've covered on this show. Most of the time, it's like these are at least two or below kind of reviews for him. I'm surprised by the three out of four simply because he is notoriously was known for not liking horror movies. That was his least yeah. favorite genre. Mm -hmm. And this has so many horrific elements in it. So I'm surprised. Yeah, I think maybe it's because, yeah, the injection of like the humor and the adventure is like it's stuff that is able to balance out the horror elements to where like this movie doesn't just come at you as a horror film. It really is this like weird action adventure comedy that happens to be taking place in between these horror elements. And so like, I'm, I'm really glad that he liked it because with a Metascore of 22, when you've got Roger Ebert at the top of the board with a 75, I think that says a lot. So if you're gonna listen to anybody's take on it, listen to Roger Ebert. He said it's not very good, but he loved it. <laughs> I think we're kind of saying the same thing, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look at that. We're like Roger Ebert here. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. But that's that's how we do it. You know, you've been, you've been on this show before, but uh, I wanted to give you a chance to shout out your show. Uh, you were doing a two part episode the last time I checked in. Uh, it was yes. it was a fairly recent one too. It was like maybe last week. I forgot what the t the movie was. So. Before we jump to me, which thank mm -hmm. you, um, I do want to mention I did a little bit of research and you had mentioned Anaconda earlier. Yeah, I found two other movies that if people like Congo, mm -hmm. that oh, they should right. check out. Yes, our gateway drug. Can we do that? <laughs> yes, I forgot about that. I was having so much fun. And I was like, oh, wow, we're almost at two hours already. I was like, I guess I got to wrap this up. Uh, but yes, mo most of the time. When we do the wrap up part of the show, I always ask my guests, what is a good sort of uh, comparison movie or double feature? But I've changed the language. So I want to know what's a good gateway drug movie for Congo. So there is one from 1999. Okay. The writers of Anaconda, the production team and special effects from Jurassic Park. Ooh. It's a PG-13 hour and a half treat of a movie Ooh. called Komodo. Oh, I've heard of this, but I have not seen it. It is so fun. It's much darker than Congo. It leans into mm. full horror territory. They mix the practical effects with a little bit of CG, which holds up surprisingly for a 99 film. So I recommend Komodo. And then also Primeval from 2007, rated R, full horror movie. Orlando Jones, the lead guy from Prison Break. I don't know his name. But it's about a Nile crocodile based on a true story, which was eating villagers who would bathe and their children oh, wow. in the river. And they go to try to capture it. And they build a big cage and they try to catch it on film. And it's 
so scary and tense and it gets overlooked people forget this movie exists so anaconda primeval and komodo i would say check out if you like nice. congo that sounds like a nice little triple feature there for yeah. some reason like after we had talked about anaconda also like lake placid popped into my head but that's more rated r horror but there's like a 50 foot alligator in a lake somewhere that just eating <laughs> people so i mean <laughs> so you need to watch primeval if you like lake placid then all right i will i'm gonna put that on a little like weekend to-do list here Komodo's harder to find. I had to buy the DVD, but I didn't okay. mind because there's behind the scene featurette and stuff. So nice. Um, I'll have to definitely check those out because uh, I've heard of Komodo. I don't know that I had heard of Primeval before. So that sounds fun. Yeah. though. It is. It's, it's, it's a blast. PG-13 also. So Primeval is R. OK, gotcha. Komodo's PG-13, but still tense. All right. Yeah, that's all I can ask for. I mean, look, Congo's <laughs> PG-13. That's totally fine with me. Those gorillas are still scary. Yeah. So, Movie Miss, I am the co-host of Let's Talk Turkeys. You can find my show everywhere. Quality podcasts are available. We just are releasing this week and next week our two-part episode on the movie The Stuff. <laughs> mm, that's right. Yeah. Such a crazy movie. But we try to cover bad movies but we pick them apart we don't really talk about how much we love them as much as we pick them apart but we still have a good time <laughs> so please check us out you can also find us on facebook instagram and twitter x <laughs> yeah and it, it was silver bullet was the last one that i was listening yes. to i love silver bullet yes silver bullet was a treat because again it's one of those movies where people either haven't seen it they overlooked it or they're like oh, i don't know if it's that good and i'm like rewatch it <laughs> gary Busey's amazing <laughs> yeah and the actor who plays like the priest slash wolf uh <gasps> his performance is great yes. in that movie everett McGill. Yeah, and you get like unhinged gary Busey as well so yes <laughs> get, what, it was, was it Corey haim that's like riding his like jet scooter yes sweet little Corey haim and his motorized wheelchair and that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's the, that's the episode. I it looks like I have about thirty five minutes left in that one. Um, but yeah, it was it came on in the car while I was driving around. So oh, cool! Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Thank you for being a guest once again. It was nice to get to talk to you one on one and really like get into uh, a movie that we both love. And I got to tell you, when we did Dark Man for Film Club, I kind of like Dark Man a lot. <laughs> can't be it, friends anymore nick yeah. sorry <laughs> <laughs> i can totally understand like why someone wouldn't like it and it's not even like that super well rated or anything but i had never seen it i had only seen the sequels so like my vision of what i thought dark man was was not what i got and i was like oh my god this is like sam raimi just like with a blank check to do whatever he wants and he made the wildest movie he could possibly think of and i was like whoa i was like okay dark man was a uh, way different experience than i anticipated but i had so much fun with it uh i don't know like if i continued to watch it over the years if it would ever like hold up but i know dark man is a, a big point of contention with you and your co-host uh so i feel like i needed to shout that out well he'll appreciate that there's somebody else out there that loves it well at least liked it <laughs> yeah you let you let him know <laughs> yeah i will <laughs> Cool. Well, it was so nice to talk to you. I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm glad we got to knock this one out. And uh, I'm so glad that it was Congo because when I put the wish list out there, I was like, I don't know if anyone's really going to like want to do this. I don't know if I want to sort of guide anybody's hand into choosing something. But I was like, you know what? If I don't make the list of like the things that I would consider 
good for this show. I don't know if anyone will ever bring it up. So I'm glad that I put it out there. I'm glad that you reached out to me because like Congo's amazing. I had so much fun watching it again. It's field of dreams, Nick. If you put it out there, they will come. They will exactly. come to you. Cool. Well, well, thank, thank you, you for having me. This has been a blast. It has been a lot of fun. And thank you for joining me. You enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks once again to Movie Miss for indulging my love of Congo. Check out her show, Let's Talk Turkeys, wherever you get your quality podcasts. And you can find her at movie underscore miss on Instagram. And drive in, Dave, if you're listening, I dig dark man. So let's talk. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. And the new support page is live at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash bad movies we love. I'd love to hear from you, so if you have a bad movie you love and or maybe would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me now at badmovieswelove at thescheiss.com or badmovieswelove on Twitter and Instagram, and that's love with an L-U-V. And as always, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies.